don't think linearly. Think, you know, look at history. Look how quickly things changed. You know, basically that transition from horses to, to cars happened within 10 years. And this could be an equally fast transition. Welcome. My name is Daniel Durlay, and I'm the president of the Global Young Entrepreneur Society, an international organization supporting exceptional young people in accomplishing their entrepreneurial ambitions. Co-hosting the interview with me today is Giles England, director of GS's Australia and Oceania operations. Joining us today is Paul Fox, co-founder and chief strategy officer of EV Networks an infrastructure company for the future of electrified transportation. EV is building Australia's largest electric vehicle charging network for private and public charging. Paul has been an entrepreneur and investor in clean energy for over 20 years in Australia and Silicon Valley. He had previous roles at AGL Energy, Sovereign Cross Ventures, the California Clean Energy Fund, Flextronics and the United Nations. He has held multiple board and advisory roles at high growth and technology companies in Australia and the USA. We are very pleased to welcome Paul Fox. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, great to be here and uh, looking forward to uh, talking to you and, uh, and your viewers. It's a pleasure to have you. Paul, when did you know you wanted to become an entrepreneur and start your own company? Well, I kind of accidentally arrived in Silicon Valley in 1999. And I've got to say, prior to that, I, I hadn't really uh, heard of startups or, or, or maybe I'd vaguely heard about them in the background. And uh, we, we, we had, I've been part of a very high growth electronics manufacturing company. And we, uh, we had sold to a big American company. And so I was thinking, what am I going to do next? And uh, ran into a, a group of people that were interested in clean energy. And I've done some work in electricity in the past. And I thought, wow, I'll, I'm going to get into this startup scene. It looks really uh, exciting. But I think in retrospect, you know, uh, I, I've been entrepreneurial my whole career. And I, you know, I think it's a mindset as much as it is a, a job or, or a role. You know, it's the way you think about things. It's, it's, you know, questioning the status quo. It's looking for new ways of doing things. And it's not being deterred by not having any money or resources. I and mean, that's really what it comes down to. And so I've been doing that pretty well my own, my whole career, sometimes with good results, sometimes with not so good results. And it, it kind of came together when I got to Silicon Valley. Paul, what is your vision uh, for the future of electric vehicles and electric chargers? In Australia and worldwide. Well, we 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 we'll often say, you know, uh, our, our vision for for twenty thirty is that if it moves, it's powered by EV networks, and so we want to provide the electrons for um, the the electrification of transportation in Australia, and you know, we're looking at overseas markets as well. But I think you you know, it, it's going to look very different in ten years' time, and and that's because the world is changing, and it's not. Yeah, a lot of times we as humans, we tend to think linearly. We, we sort of think, well, hey, I'm, I'm going to go and sell my petrol or diesel car and I'm going to buy an electric car. I'm going to park it in my garage and life goes on. But actually life will be very different because there are other trends happening uh, at the same time. And so those trends are on-demand transportation, electric, electric transportation, and finally 
autonomous transportation. You bring those three things together and you don't have a, a, a gradual change, you have exponential change. You, you're bringing down the cost of a kilometre by perhaps as much as 80% because you're taking out, you know, switching from fuel, um, uh, oil-based fuels to electricity, that's three quarters of your fuel costs gone. You switch to autonomy, that is, uh, you know, 50% of the, the, you know, the labour component of transportation gone. And then these on-demand business models, um, you know, over the last few years, the fact that you can use the smartphone, uh, computers and so forth to optimise transportation and get transportation there just when you need it has meant that the utilisation of those, those vehicles, trucks, cars, vans has increased immeasurably and that also brings the cost down. So what happens when something, the cost of something falls by 80%? Well, I tell you, people buy more of it. They use more of it. And so... We're bringing down the cost of transportation. And so the, the number of kilometres is going to go up because they're cheaper. And instead of holding inventory, uh, you're going to um, swap that for on-demand delivery. Uh, you're going to, um, you know, maybe you don't want to own a car anymore because for the, for the cost of one car, you could have billions of kilometres of, of uh, robo-taxis driving you around the place. So things will really change. They'll look very different. People will be using different types of vehicles and these vehicles will be charging in different places. So the world's going to look very different. We intend to be right at the middle of that. Um, we, we take 10, 20-year leases for our charging stations, so we have to think that far ahead. And, Paul, do you see the potential for electric car charging companies such as EV or many others to collaborate with the Australian government or international governments? Absolutely. And um, we have already received a considerable amount of support from the government because the government knows that, that uh, electrification transportation has big benefits for uh, air quality and that goes directly to health costs. So in the Sydney area here where I am, there's something about $3 billion in health costs a year because of the stuff that comes out of the tailpipes of vehicles. They're tiny little particles. They go in through your lungs. They go into your bloodstream, into your brain, and they cost us about $3 billion a year in health costs. So that stuff's you know, literally killing us. Um, on top of that, because electric transport is so much cheaper, um, you've got huge productivity gains to be had. So governments are right behind it. Uh, you know, we've received a considerable amount of money, not only from federal government, but also from state governments and local governments and so forth over time. But all of that money needs to be matched by private capital. And so most of, most of the money that we put to work, and there's probably nearly $100 million so far, has come from private investors. And one particular private investor, the St. Baker Energy Innovation Fund, that's supported us right from the beginning. When we work with governments, you know, they, they, they give and they take. So the other thing governments have to think about is what's good policy, what sorts of rules and regulations need to be in place. And so that's the other area for collaboration. You know, we want them to put in place um, uh, regulations that are appropriate to this new technology. Electric vehicles are very digital. You know, they're computers on wheels. 
Whereas the old petrol and diesel cars, you know, that they weren't much better than a steam engine in the in the end. And so you don't want to be, you know, rules that work for steam engines and petrol cars being applied to electric vehicles because you're going to crimp innovation and you're going to slow things down. So, so that's uh, you know, there's a there's a give and take with government and in, in how we work with them. How do you see the regulation of autonomous vehicles as they have the possibility of taking away lots of jobs? As as did you know, moving from horses to horseless carriages. You know, there were a lot of people that worked in stables, and in fact, the the you know the, the streets of of uh, cities in North America and Europe and here in Australia were were actually full of horse poo. Okay, so uh, and there were lots of people employed just just scraping all that poo off the road and shipping it out to the countryside where it was used. Um, for fertilizer on farms and all those jobs went away but but somehow um, those jobs have been replaced you know times change new new types of jobs will emerge as we go forward now it's not to say uh, that we, we we take that lightly you know you do need to think about how jobs are going to change over time but they will change and people will be doing different kinds of jobs um, you know, I think, you know, you think about it, if you've got a bunch of robo-taxis out there, you know, there's obviously lots of jobs involved in creating the robo-taxis, programming them, managing them, you know, but there's there's some basic jobs just around wrangling robo-taxis. Um, how do they get serviced? How do they get charged? How do you make sure they're operated safely and so forth? Um, so you can see those kind of jobs um, uh, emerging in the future. We often think, you know, one of the things we think about is who's going to own the who's going to own the robo taxis, who's going to look after them. Is that going to be small business people or is it going to be big corporations? Um, so yeah, the economy is going to change, uh, jobs are going to change. You know, people are going to be doing different kinds of jobs uh, as as it was, you know, back there. You know, over 100 and boy, just 120 years ago when we made that transition from horses to to um, uh, horseless carriers. Because one of the important things is, you know, don't think linearly. Think, you know, look at history. Look how quickly things changed. You know, basically that transition from horses to to cars happened within 10 years, and this could be an equally fast transition. But you've got to think that it's not going to just be, you know, uh, uh, cut and paste, that there's going to be lots of factors that come together to make the world a different kind of place. And that creates opportunities for entrepreneurs. How do you secure grant funding? I read that you received over $15 million in grants. So how do you get how do you get grant funding? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so fifteen was our first uh, grant fund, and, and I think it's still the biggest one. So we we got uh, uh, five hundred thousand dollars in seed funding to get the company going, and essentially, um, you know, we we knew that at that time there were only well, I think there's now something I don't know, one hundred and twenty, one hundred thirty thousand electric vehicles on the road in Australia. So it's still pretty early days, but in those days there were there were a few thousand, and so. Um, we we re, we realized that we were going to need some capital support to make this happen, and that having that capital support from the government also would lend some credibility and help us to bring 
additional funds in. So, so early on, you know, we got good support from our investor and they put in seed funding of 500,000 and, and it was basically, well, go out, work out what the business model is, how are you going to do this and look for what we call non-dilutive funding. And so that's uh, any new equity will dilute the existing equity. But if you can bring grant funding in, then that's non-dilutive funding and you can basically get you know, more out of the investor dollar. Now, typically for this sort of thing, the government's going, the, the subsidy from the government's only going to be 30% of the total project costs because they want to make sure you've got skin in the game. So our investor said, you get this additional funding and then we will match it. And so that $15 million, they matched that with you know, 30, uh, 35 million, I think it was ultimately. And so that that's that's how you, how you kind of uh, uh, bring that together. Now, depending where you are in the world and what kind of business you are as an entrepreneur, there can be quite a lot of grant funding available from the government. But before you get that grant funding, you need to get some seed funding. You need to get your business going in some stage and you need to find someone willing to match the government money. So how do you do that? Well, number one, you know, you've got to understand your industry really well. You've got to create a team, a complementary team. Can't all be engineers, can't all be marketing guys, can't all be software developers. You know, you've got to have a right mix of people. And then uh, be very focused on your product offering, validate that people really want to buy it. And then once you've got that validation that people really want to buy it, then, and you've got a good team to execute on it, then you can go out to get that seed funding. I think that's, you know, particularly these days, it's so cheap to start a, to get a startup going that, uh, except perhaps in electric vehicle charging, um, that you, uh, that validation, you know, investors are looking for that validation. And where do you start? Well, you know, first up, you know, your initial funding could be from what they call friends, families and fools. And so that's that's really you know, just the people you know that are willing to put in a few bucks to get you going. They're not necessarily super sophisticated investors, but they can get you get you rolling, get you started. But finally, I've got to say this: is don't raise money if you don't need it. Um, you know, uh, there's an assumption uh, in in kind of startup land in in the universe of startup. You know, we're always celebrating. Hey, this company got a big, you know, ten million dollars, fifty million dollars. But that $50 million, that's not an achievement. That's a down payment on a future achievement. And not only that, that you know, getting that money meant they had to give away a lot of their own equity for you know, a bigger pie. So for a lot of people, you know, your, your entrepreneurial activity could be something you can bootstrap. You can get sales from customers and feed that back into your business and grow your business that way. And then maybe you never need to raise capital. Two reasons to raise capital. Number one, someone's breathing over your shoulder. Now, no one was breathing over my shoulder when, when we started EV Networks, to be honest, because there were no EVs on the road. And, you know, trying to persuade someone that they were coming was really tough. But we did have the other problem. And the other problem is we needed, to, we couldn't do it without capital because it's a capital intensive business. So building one of these charging stations, it sort of starts at $200,000. And then, you know, our very first station cost us $1.2 million. 
And so you, you, you can't do that on your credit card or, you know, get a loan from your mum. You've, you've got to, you know, you've got to go out and, and get some serious investor money and you get some grant money to, to make it work. How do you believe the economy will adapt to the future of electric vehicles, such as the shift from petrol stations to electric charging stations? You know, there's opportunity there because of the way it will, the way it will change. Now, so, so number one is the economy that the economy will benefit from this massively. And um, one of the things we did early on was actually uh, sponsor some research to show, you know, that the big productivity gain, because at that time the politics here was, you know, very much about we don't care about climate, all we care about is productivity. So we, we did a study that showed these massive billions of dollars worth of productivity improvement. Why? Because the the... You know, the running cost of these vehicles is so much lower because the the um, health costs are so much lower um, because you 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 can sort of roll uh, productivity on top of productivity because all of a sudden you're saving each each household in Australia is going to save seventy five percent of their transportation costs and they're going to spend that money on other stuff that's going to boost the economy. Uh, and it's going to stay onshore rather than going offshore. So all these things are going to drive um, uh, the economy. Now, however, does that mean that people are going to be going to gas stations? Well, maybe not, because, again, this is very different. So why are there gas stations? So in the old days when cars first started, you could go to a convenience store or a drugstore, like a pharmacy, chemist and get yourself a can of petrol and you could fill up your car. But over time, as the industry grew, we needed to you know, store the petrol in really big tanks. And you don't want to be, you know, you ought to have tanks of petrol sitting around everywhere. And so we centralised that we created these things called service stations. And under the service station, there's these big underground tanks full of flammable liquid. We don't need that because electricity is everywhere, Okay. There's an electricity outlet at my feet here that I could use to charge a car. There's one, you know, right, right next to you in the room. There's one at the shops. There's one everywhere. So we can charge electric, electric cars anywhere. And so the way we look about it is people don't have to make a special visit to a gas station or a petrol station. They can charge at home. Most people, like 60% of people charge at home because they can. And then those people that live in an apartment or... Maybe they're a business and they can't charge at home. Well, then they can charge at you know the places they normally go to, the places where they go to eat, where they go to shop, where they go to the gym, those sorts of things. So we're putting these charging stations in all of those kinds of places, uh, shopping malls, um, council car parks that are near some places to go. You're going to be there for 20 minutes. And so... You, you walk up, you plug your car in, it starts charging, and then you go off, have a cup of coffee, have your lunch, do your shopping for the week, get your hair cut, whatever you're going to do. Commercial drivers, yeah, they're going to need some sort of a hub. But think about it, the cars are going to be there. It's not like a petrol station where the cars are just going in and out. Like every five minutes, a new car goes in. These cars are going to be there for 10, 20 minutes. So the dwell time is longer. So in order to serve a similar number of vehicles in a day, you need, you know, 14 times the amount of space to do that. And also, what are they going to do while they're there? What are the drivers going to do while they're there? 
I mean, they could sit in their car and go on their phone, you know, send some texts or whatever. But generally, people are going to do something, uh, do, do stuff. Next thing, so let's say you create one of these service stations, gas stations, but it's electrons, but your revenue per car has dropped by 75% or, or by half. So now how are you going to support paying for that land in the middle of the city with, with a gas station? And, you know, people aren't going to want to go in and buy a Mars bar or a slushy. They're going to want to sit down and have a proper meal. Do you have room to do that? So I think the world's going to change. You know, the gas station's probably on the way out. Something new is going to come in, but it won't work in exactly the same way. It can't work in the same way. There's an opportunity, okay? What are they going to look like? How's it going to work? Where are you going to go? Long distance, like highway travel stops on the motorways and things, yeah, they're going to look pretty well, but a little bit like they look today. They're going to be a little bit bigger because of the throughput, but, you know, they're going to be quite similar. Um, but in the city areas, yeah, it's going to change. It's going to be integrated into the urban landscape rather than special charging stations, I think, or a lot of it will be. How do you, how do you expect the Australian economy and other economies to adapt to this increased demand for renewable energy? As currently, yeah. uh, the Australian energy use is only around 35% renewable. Yeah, the first thing, first thing to say is even though only 30% of our electricity is renewable at the moment, um, it's still better to drive an electric because electric cars are so much more efficient than petrol and diesel. And so, so it's still better for the environment to buy an electric car, even though upstream there's a lot of coal and gas still being used to power them. Um, but that's going to change over time. You know, what, what do we need? We need a lot more transmission. In other words, we need uh, you know, big big poles, big towers with wires on them, big thick wires on them to, to move the electricity down where you need it. And that needs to be out in the bush, you know, where all the sun is uh, or out near the coast for offshore wind or whatever. So we need a lot of transmission. We need a lot more storage. And so, you know, my, my belief that's going to be utility scale, large scale um, batteries uh, rather than a lot of distributed storage just because the economics favour that particular model. So that's going to happen, but it'll only happen if there's some certainty uh, 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 and clarity, regulatory clarity around how much renewable energy is going to be used. EVs play a part in that because... Electrification means that we're moving the fuel costs from oil over to electricity. And so that can provide more demand and therefore justify a business case for these renewable energy investments. So, you know, it, it, it's going to happen. It's going to, ha in some ways, it happens regardless of electric vehicles. But I think electric vehicles are going to help accelerate it because there's, there's going to be so much more demand um, being added. Having said that, it's probably going to add, you know, 15, 20 um, percent additional consumption uh, over the over the sorts of period planning periods that we need to think about these big investments in the, in the grid and in and in storage and renewable energy. Do you foresee any opportunities for young entrepreneurs in the industry? God, if I knew, I'd be doing them myself. Yeah, I. <laughs> I think the you know we, we yeah it's a, it's a good question. I mean I think one of the challenges in um, in the area we're in is that it is quite capital intensive, um, but 
you know, there, there, there's going to be lots of, uh, lots of this is going to be software enabled in the end. You know, we, what we don't want to do necessarily, because you've got to think a little broader than just cars, electric cars. And that's kind of what I spend most of my time thinking about, electric cars, vans, trucks. Um, but that's not the whole transportation thing. We don't necessarily just want to, you know, if we end up with our streets clogged with electric vehicles, the streets are still clogged, you know, so we need transportation mobility solutions for lots and lots more people because the population is going to grow and they're going to become more dense. So uh, urban mobility, I think there's going to be lots of opportunities around urban mobility. And, you know, you see cars, you know, bikes and scooters and um, different ways of managing public transportation. And so there's, there's been a lot of thinking around there, but I don't think it's, necessarily been cracked yet. So everyone got very excited about scooters, but now uh, Paris just banned scooters. Um, I think some German cities are considering whether scooters make sense. Um, people are a little bit more comfortable with electric bicycles. Um, uh, but then there's sort of, you know, how do you manage all that? You know, this, you know, how do you manage all these electric vehicles, the relationships between them and so forth? So I think there's always opportunities there. There's, there's going to be big companies and uh, trying to get into the space. Big companies aren't necessarily very agile or fast, and they could be the, the companies that take you out if you can come up with a good idea in urban mobility, build it up, prove it out, and then maybe it's, you know, it's an auto company or it's Google or something that might you know, will pick you up and give you the, you know, buy you, give you the exit you need. But I don't know about specific opportunities. Yeah, I'm probably... Uh, I've been spending too much time thinking about uh, charging cars. What are your thoughts on work-life balance as an entrepreneur? Not good. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it, you, you've got to, you, you want to try and find balance, but I've got to say it's not easy. I think there are different times in your life when you are going to be able to um, create more focus uh, on starting a business uh, um, versus other other you know uh, things that you need to do in your life work long hours and probably always have but I, but I think you know I've tried to have some rules that I carry with me the whole way and you know one of my rules was you know always be home for dinner with the kids my wife and my kids every night at 6 p.m and read a story to the kids after uh, dinner and obviously when they got to 16 and 17 they weren't so interested in the story um, but I made them listen anyway no, I, <laughs> no I, but I still try to be there in the room and talking to them and so forth and so that that was my secret sometimes you know after my wife went to bed I'm back working again yeah you've got to carve out time for, for that was my that was kind of my rule uh, I guess other people had different rules you know I had a friend he he, he always did breakfast. He always took them to, you know, kids to school and, you know, uh, spent time with his family in the morning. Um, so I think that's important. It's important to stay healthy. You, you can't, and it, I think it's important to realise you're going to go through cycles. And so that's something we've done at Evie is, is, you know, we know that sometimes that we're working really hard, but we don't want to burn out the team. And so there's been a few occasions where we've just sort of said, hey, everybody, four days off. You know, you, we just 
you know, because we, 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 we've been working hard, but now we need a bit of a break. So we'll try to, to take that into account. And yeah, it's not easy because yeah, starting a business is and, and running it is, is really very all consuming. There's no doubt about it. But I think the successful people are those that have something outside of that very often. And typically it's often the support of their family and, and what they get from their family. Cool. Lastly, are there any books or podcasts that have really had a major influence or impact on you? Yeah. That you would recommend for young entrepreneurs? There's a couple that I always come back. And I read, I've read a lot of books, but there's probably some uh, that you know, sort of become embedded somewhere in my head. <laughs> And and I don't even remember where it came from, but I think I think a few books that you know number one is everyone that joins one of my companies has to read the Lean Startup by Eric Ries. It is it is compulsory, and um, and essentially uh, Eric uh, popularized the the work of Professor Steve Blank at Stanford, and so um, you can go to his. His books are pretty dense, and, and that's why Eric sort of rewrote it in a more readable way. But his blog, his, his sort of website, is has these great little short stories about problem solving within startups. And it, what, what it's really about is trying to work out what is it your customers want and can you scale a business around delivering it to them. They're critical, absolutely critical. You've got to read it if you're an entrepreneur. When I first read it, I suddenly realized all the things I'd been doing right and all the things I'd been doing wrong over, over the previous years. Um, I think also I, I like there's some great books on uh, how industries develop and change over time. And I, I, I just had a reason to pull out a, a book called Clock Speed. I think it's, it's back in 1998. It might have been published by Charles H. Fine, I think was for, at the Sloan Business School at the time. And that talks about the, the natural product cycles of, of different industries. So, for example, in uh, software, you know, the, you could have a six-month product cycle. You can spin really fast. But if you're making cars, then you're on a four- or five-year cycle. But then Tesla came in and they shortened that cycle. So they were taking some of the sort of thinking out of software electronics manufacturing, applying it to auto manufacturing and shortening, shortening these product cycles. Still quite long. If you look at a lot of the, a lot of Tesla's products have actually still been out in the market quite long, um, but it's, they're much shorter than, than, say, what Ford, General Motors, Volkswagen and, and others are doing. And, but it also talks a little bit about how industries move between having integrated solutions and modular solutions. And so if you think about in, in uh, computers, so uh, Apple has a very integrated solution, okay? Everything works together in Apple. But then if you're in, in the world of Windows and Intel-based computers, it's very modular. You can sort of mix and match between, you know, Hewlett-Packard, Lenovo, and, and all the different things. And there's pros and cons of those different mod models, but also industries move through those those different models and crossing the chasm by um, Jeffrey Moore is another good one. I think you guys have actually interviewed him. Um, he actually kind of comes back to that in some ways, you know, pointing out that you need in the early stages of, of an industry, you need to develop a complete solution 
And so that's one of the things I've been thinking about is how do we put together a complete solution for our customers and how long before that becomes modularized? How long before those customers really understand electric vehicles very well and they don't need to buy an integrated solution? They can just buy the parts and build it themselves or build the solution themselves. So recommend that. Um, the other one about industry change and development is um, The Innovator's Dilemma by uh, Clayton Christensen. And so that that talks about why, you know, why big companies uh, are not very good at adapting to, to massive change. And um, I like coming back to that because I you know, very often find myself competing with big companies and need to understand how to you know, how they think and, and how to compete with them and how to come out of it the other end in one piece. We have come to the end of today's discussion, which I found highly insightful into the electric charging industry. On behalf of the Global Young Entrepreneur Society, Paul Fox, thank you very much for speaking with us today. You're very welcome. And yeah, this entrepreneurialism is a mindset. It's not a job or a role. So whatever you're doing, you know, think that way. That's the kind of, that's my parting advice. So thank you very much. Great to talk to you.